also known as show flu? Uh, I think it's uh, the same flu I had before the show opened. It just never really left. It just got drank into submission. Okay. Yeah. And on that note, I'd like to say welcome to Geeks with Kids, your bi-weekly geeky podcast from a parenting point of view. I am your host, Matt Moore. And with us today, we have Mr. Eric. Howdy. Mr. Steve. Hello. And for our longtime listeners, the return of Mr. Spears. How are you, sir? Hey, pretty good. Fantastic. Uh, we also have some special guests with us this week. Uh, I would like to welcome to the show uh, Aaron Lupton and Jeff Spearglass. Hey. Hey. Thanks for having us. <laughs> I just Ow. waved as if people could see that. But say <laughs> Very cute. Thank you. Visual bits on an audio podcast is always fun. Yeah. Hey, I, I appreciated it. Yeah. yeah. Eric, add described video right now. Yeah, well, I'm recording video as well, so... There yeah. we go. Oh, perfect. There we go. <laughs> so um, we'll look as good as we sound. <laughs> well, we will, Spears, so... Oh, man. I knew I should put makeup on. Or got, more makeup on, anyways. I was going to say, that rosy complexion isn't... Uh, That's sort of blush. pure spite and whiskey, my friend. Pure spite <laughs> and whiskey. <laughs> oh, my, my, my. Uh, so, gentlemen... Uh, of course, we always like to introduce our guests and give a, a quick little rundown on them. You guys, of course, being a special case because you are the authors of the book that we are actually going to be talking about this week, Blood on Black Wax Horror Soundtracks on Vinyl. Woo. So mm. if you would like, and I'll let you guys decide who's going to talk first on this one. If you want to give us just a quick little rundown of, of who you guys are, uh, sort of your geeky pedigree, although I think I kind of pinpointed at least with the title of the book but if you want to give us a little bit about yourselves tell tell our loyal listeners who you are and why we have you here all right okay well uh, i'll go first my name's aaron lupton as you said and uh as you say i'm the co-author uh, of this lovely book that we're talking about today blood on black wax and uh just like you say i mean the title of the book blood on black wax horror soundtracks on vinyl every geek has one thing that they love that they blow all their money on that they shouldn't be spending their money on, whether it's movie posters or, you know, their Blu-ray collection or like old video games, whatever it is. My thing is horror soundtracks on vinyl. So, Hey, now we got a book all about that. Nice. My attic in, uh, in Hamilton is basically uh, about 50% just for my record. That's collection. amazing. <laughs> nice. I love it. And 50% severed limbs. <laughs> the other obsession we don't talk about right Eric? that's yeah. right well that's the base oh. <laughs> it's unfinished <laughs> for a reason yeah um uh my name is jeff spearglass um some might say i'm of relations to at least one of the hosts on the show um no comment no comments um and I am a long, long-standing soundtrack fan. I've been listening to soundtracks since I was a kid. Um, you know, when it was cool to pick up Michael Jackson, I was buying Star Wars records. Um, and I've always been a big fan of horror films. So, and I've just been always fascinated by the use of sound and music, especially in horror films. I think that they're perhaps more cutting edge than a lot of other genres because of the liberties that get taken with um, sound and horror and music and horror and, and music and horror films does goes to places that I think very other, very few other genres and films do uh, and music and those types of movies do. 
Um, and while I don't have a record collection the size of Aaron's, uh, I do have a CD collection and uh, still listen to CDs in the car uh, on long drives to work. Nice. Yeah. 12 inches. And I don't have any severed limbs in my basement. Yet. Yes. <laughs> it's inevitable, really, but... Yeah. Cool. Uh, now, just, just to give a little rundown, we're going to slowly ease our way into the book. Is this the first uh, collaboration that the two of you have done as authors? Because like you said, you, you co-authored this book, so... It is. Uh, so uh, I'm, as part of a side gig, the music editor for Rumor magazine, which is a Toronto-based horror magazine. I oversee the the music section there, and I know Jeff from Rumorg uh, because he writes soundtrack reviews for that particular section. So that's how we got to know each other, and that's where this whole idea came from. And uh, this was a the first thing we've ever worked together in that regard. Unless you know you're talking about Jeff writing a CD review and sending it to me, me putting it in the magazine. Now, are there are there other works that you guys have out there? Uh, I mean, you said you both work for Rumorg. Uh, is there other uh, published works you guys have out there that uh, people could also track down if they were so inclined? Um, I, I do. I have, this is book, I think this is book number 25, 24 for me. Um, but this is the first one specifically not for kids. Um, and most of my books, I've, I've written nonfiction books for kids through Owl. Um, I used to be an editor at Owl and Chickadee Church Magazine. Um, I've done, you know, in novels for emerging readers of chapter books. Uh, I did the choose your own, not a choose your own adventure as a trademark term, but a choose your own story for Scholastic. I have a couple of horror anthologies for kids coming out. Um, but this is the first book that isn't for kids. And it was tricky because when I market myself, I market myself as a teacher and a kids writer. Um, and then it came time to link to reviews of this book or any press around this book. <laughs> You know, on sites like Bloody Disgusting or, you know, a host of other sort of websites where when you click on it, horrible, terrible imagery comes up. And, I have to, as, a, and as a teacher as well, I have to be very careful about what I put on my social media. Um, you know, if, if, if it has a picture of the book, that's great. But if it has like a picture of Freddy Krueger disemboweling somebody, I have to not necessarily put it on my author page because... You know, there might be young people looking at that. Mm. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. But then again, the parents will probably think it's really cool. Also yeah. True. <laughs> and I am always the strongest opponent. You can never introduce children too early to the horror genre. Because I, I learned really young and I turned out just fine, right? Yeah. Uh, mm. That's the argument. That's the argument that I always use. You know, I, I always think like, because I just had a kid, uh, right? before this book came out, actually, like right as we were finishing this oh. book, this guy came into my life down here <laughs> and I thinking, Oh, well, I can't show him, you know, cannibal Holocaust or something like that, which, you know, that's probably not a good idea to show <laughs> yeah. him a baby. But at the same time, I was pretty young when I started watching horror movies and I'm like the least violent person that I know most of the time. <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> Except on Tuesdays. Except, except when being pulled over by police officers in Hamilton. Wow. That's <laughs> a whole other thing, though. <laughs> Not that that's ever happened to my, me at all numerous no. times living in the East End. Never. <laughs> well, you know, the funny here's the thing, though. I, I've got two books coming out. Um, 
one of which is already, you know, been announced on, on the internet, but it's, it's, a, it's an anthology of scary stories for kids, but I don't specifically write for kids. It just happens that kids are the protagonists of the story. And, you know, it's not that, you know, as a culture, we have never, you know, we are, horror has been ingrained in, in culture for kids for, for centuries of the, the fairy tales, the stories of the Brothers Grimm. Grimm fairy tales. Yeah, I mean, it's cats get off my computer and stop making noise. Um, <laughs> sorry about that, listeners. But so it, it's it's a genre, it, it's a type of storytelling that's been around since, you know, we were telling stories. Um, I think just we're able to render things visually quite graphically um, in a way that perhaps is less palatable um, culturally. But, you know, you look at the story of Roald Dahl, I mean, they're, they're pretty nasty. Kids are, yeah. are getting carved up and, and fed to monsters. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's the manner in which you do so that, that I guess is acceptable. Um, and horror films tend to be, you know, an, an, an outsider genre that, you know, tends to spit in the face of the mainstream when it, when it can. So it, it kind of rides that fine line between being art and, and sometimes being trash and mm-hmm. maybe, you know, wearing its unacceptability as a badge of honor. Uh, yeah. You have to be careful when, when you're writing for kids, but those stories, a lot of, you know, the scary stories for kids that are really scary do go down, down that rabbit hole. Um, you know, they're just a little more careful about how they do so. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. You guys have all heard me rant numerous times about my elevated horror and how I can't stand that term for <laughs> scary movies that are acceptable to the mainstream. I'm like, no, no they're yeah. just, a scary movie's a scary movie. Don't change the title so that it, you can market it better. And like Jeff was saying, like a lot of, even our fairy tales are fairly scary. And oh, I remember yeah. I remember going to the Scholastic Book Fairies and like when I was in grade four or five and seeing scary stories to tell in the dark. And it was just like, this is what you guys should read. Yeah. Which is being made into a movie has, has been made. It is right. Yeah. And is coming out very soon. If I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. showcasing Hamilton mm-hmm. and surrounding yeah. areas. Yeah. Nothing made me giggle harder than watching that one shot. That was the hill right by Gundas district. I'm like, I know where that is. <laughs> oh, is it? Is it yeah. The, the Sydenham hill. Yeah. The, the, the train bridge right on, right yeah, up Sydenham yeah. hill. Yeah, that one shot. I'm like, I know that bridge. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, made me giggle. Well, Del Toro is a big supporter yes. of Hamilton. Is he yeah. not? He wants. To he loves. He loves Hamilton. It's a really photogenic city. I, yeah. I've, I've. There's a book I, I put out called um, Sheldon Unger versus the Dentures of Doom, but it, it's it's set in a in a small town that is Dundas because the great thing about Dundas. Um, where I grew up is that visually it's not a mountain city, but it has the look of it's encompassed by the Hamilton mountain, the escarpment. So it has a very closed in kind of quality to it, mm-hmm. um, which I think actually, and, it, and it's still a quaint small town that has wooded areas and does have like a sort of nature pressing in on you kind of vibe that that does work really well for a scary story. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. The remarkable thing about Hamilton, about Dundas especially is you could go five minutes in one direction and be out in a deserted cornfield and go five minutes in the other and be in the middle of a major metropolitan city. Yeah. Yes. Oh, I was just watching um, The Brain, uh, a great Canadian classic, uh, which was filmed in Mississauga, but also on the uh, uh, 
on the Hamilton Escarpment going up to Ancaster. And they're going, looking up and going, oh, there's a city in the, in the horizon. That's obviously Hamilton because they shot it in Canada. And <laughs> you wouldn't get a cityscape like that elsewhere. But yeah. of course, it's passed off as like nowhere still USA. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah you got to love the Black, Black Roses, which we profile in our book, is also mm-hmm. Dundas's own. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, I guess that we've actually segued very, very tidily into uh, sort of generally, I was kind of always going to ask you, know, what what drew you two to this topic and what kind of inspired this choice for a book? And you guys have already really dove into that very heavily. You both seem very, very passionate about just the use of sound and the soundscapes that, that are featured in this, uh, my personal opinion, phenomenal genre of film um, where they tend to use sound and music far more than they do really in any other type of genre. Um, so was there any, like, was it just as obviously we were talking earlier and you said this was really a passion project for you guys, uh, which definitely shows both in the writing and just the, uh, the general feel of the book. Um, so yeah. Just, well, where, where, yeah, I mean, where the, the whole book came from and the idea of the book was Jeff uh, approached me about doing um, what was formerly known as a, a rumor supplement, which is basically like a big fat magazine that came along with, you know, the regular edition of rumor. It's on different topics. Like there was one on horror films and there was one on shark movies and there was one on Canadian horror and there was one on women in horror. And Jeff said, let's do one on, on horror soundtracks. Hmm. And I thought, <coughs> well, if it's about horror soundtracks, I'm into it. Right. Because it's, it's just a huge passion of mine. But I thought, it's not going to work that well if we're just sort of listing 200 different mini reviews, people will look at it and they'll think it's cool and they'll read it for a few pages and then they'll put it down and they won't finish reading it. And so I thought right now, horror soundtracks are more popular than ever. They've, they've, you know, in, in the past horror soundtracks was one of those things where, you know, if you ask a, you know, a horror movie fan about horror soundtracks, they go, Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I love them. But could they name more than like two or three? Probably Mm. not. Right now, it's so popular. And I thought, why is it so popular? Oh, well, it's because of these companies like Waxwork right. and Death Balls, Mondo, that are reissuing um, the scores on vinyl and they're giving them these, you know, nice deluxe gatefold color, you know, with custom art packaging and everything mm-hmm. like that. And I think that, that to a large extent, people are getting into that because of the artwork. But I like to think that along the way, they're starting to listen to like, you know, Christopher Young and Goblin and John Carpenter in a way that they never used to before. And I thought, let's tap into that for yeah. this book. Let's make this book not just about horror soundtracks, but about a current, you know, I hate to say the word trend, but that's what it is. Uh, horror soundtracks on vinyl. And that will sort of allow it to appeal to a wider audience than just a book on horror soundtracks would and again it for me like as a passion project that kind of fit in nicely right because i'm a collector and so it you know i get to show off my collection and sort of get into all the nerdy details about the release the various releases that came out and the history of the horror soundtrack and everything like that but at the same time <laughs> excuse me get into you know all the cool um meat of the topic which is the music itself you know sort of piggybacking on what aaron has said um for me, I think the opportunity to 
get to interview our heroes and have a, like a reason to call them up and talk shop with them was half of the fun of doing the book. Um, and as somebody who has collected CDs over albums and, and always really enjoying the album cover art books, you know, covers often like punk and rock to do it about horror films. So the, even the imagery on the older releases, is, you know, the adapted poster art is often so evocative and never really had a chance to sort of shine in his own book. Um, made it worthwhile. Plus, as Aaron said, these new companies like, you know, like Mondo and Waxwork, Finders Keepers, that just have really turned them into art pieces. There was this great opportunity to show, showcase the old new together um, with the sort of unifying <laughs> look and feel of, of, you know, sort of a horror film. Uh, made it uh, a really... A great visual hook for a book. Oh, absolutely. The, the the book itself, it like I said, it's it's beautifully laid out. There's some beautiful art in there. They have so many different album covers attached to all the chapters, which just like the art on that, both the re-release stuff and some of the original is absolutely stunning to look at. Yeah, yeah. I love wow. I love seeing all these reiterations of uh, you know, the movie posters or there's the con the core concept of the film. Like that's yeah, I so good. So good. I know it was wonderful to see. I'm going to kind of open this up to, to our panel and just sort of open it up to, you know, Eric and Spears and Steve and just see, say, what are your thoughts? What were your thoughts on the book? We were lucky enough to get a, a, a copy sent to us to, to peruse. What were your thoughts generally on the book? What were some of the favorite soundtracks that were covered on here? And I'm going to start with Eric. Yeah. So um, as you guys and probably longtime listeners know I'm a big soundtrack fan, but I also have this love-hate relationship with horror films. I love watching them, but they scare the crap out of me. Um, so, so usually I don't go back and listen to the soundtracks because it sort of brings up those memories and then I don't want to hang out in this basement, which has all my fun stuff. Um, but the, the best thing about flipping through this book was just seeing the visual just the the art style and making make me realize oh yeah that's something i've totally forgot that i've watched and i really want to listen to it again but um i think my favorite chapter was the savage um sci-fi section because that is my childhood to a t like i watched (laughs) aliens way too young and that music plays through my head frequently and um it was just great seeing all of these um soundtracks that and Luckily, Spotify has a lot of them on. It's not the same fidelity as listening to it on vinyl, um, but it is stuff that I I, I love um, just revisiting. Uh, so I think my favorite things were reading all the stuff about aliens, and, um, and then there were like the family horror movies that I just like remember as a kid. So like Gremlins and and uh, Beetlejuice and The Burbs, which I had totally forgotten until I read it about it in this book again. Um, so I'm definitely going to watch that movie uh, again. Um, <laughs> the first was uh, an 11th hour entry. I mean, we slipped that in. We had a couple extra pages. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. They, yeah. Such a fun movie from what I can remember. And yeah. I love Tom Hanks in anything. So mm-hmm. um, that's cool. It, the, the other thing that I loved reading was um, one of my favorite shows now is Stranger Things. And uh, when you guys talk about the, the, like the John Carpenter and all that, all those uh, soundtracks from the eighties. And you can totally see where they took the inspiration for that music and popped it into that sort mm-hmm. of eighties love letter to Spielberg and horror and yeah. all of that. Um, the the synth I, I love horror. That. Yeah. The, the synth wave horror. I just, oh, I love mm-hmm. it. Yeah. 
it's a bit, it's, it's become a big thing now. And, and I have very fond memories of the summer of 2016 when, when stranger things came out, I remember it popping up on Netflix, people started talking about it. And as soon as it starts and those synth pads begin at the beginning yeah. of the show, I was like, I'm yeah. in, I'm in, I'm, I'm this show i actually thought it was an, an artist that we talk about in the book and a band from pittsburgh called zombie mm-hmm. um it's a, a sort of i i guess you could call them space rock or or synth wave it sounds so much like them and that that's what i thought it was but it turned out it was this band from austin called yeah. survive who i'd never heard before up up, up, up until then but um, <laughs> for me carpenter is like i hate to be so predictable but carpenter's my guy you know what i mean like he's my favorite director he's my favorite composer and i listen to john carpenter that you know the way that you know people listen to whatever like the white stripes or guns and roses or you know whatever band that they're into for me john carpenter is like right up there right he's like top bands or whatever i saw him three times live and that was the first time that was the first interview that jeff and i did for the book um, and the reason why was because he was gearing up for his second tour and he was, and I said to Jeff, now's the time to try and score an interview with him for this book because he's going to be doing press for his tour. And so I reached out to his people. They said, yep, no problem. We'll give you an interview. So I said, okay, but we don't want to just talk to him about his tour. We'd like to talk to him about everything. And normally if I was interviewing someone, I would just say, oh yeah, I'm interviewing you about your tour. And then I'd ask them whatever questions I want. But I know John Carpenter is the kind of guy who's not going to take shit from anyone. So I was like, I I needed to, you know, clear things. And I said, (coughs) we're going to talk to him about everything, all of his scores, no problem. Okay, could we have like 45 minutes? Yep, no problem. You'll get 45 minutes. We're like, no way. We got 45 We got to, I think, 46 minutes, and then he was done. Yeah. <laughs> but, but then, Jeff, tell him, tell him what happened at the end of the interview. Oh, oh right. So, um, so, yeah, he was, I think he was tired after the interview ended, but, you know, he had said, you guys are obviously coming to see me. I'm, I'm playing Trump. So, you know, of course. I think at that point, I actually had first ticket, but I did about three seconds later. Uh, <laughs> he said, well, you guys sound, like, nah, you sound like cool guys, you know, come, come and see, tell me be backstage. We'll hang out for a second. I'm like, of course. And, <laughs> and, you know, we said, well, who do we talk to about that? Do we go talk to your, your PR guys? Like, you guys are smart guys. You'll figure it out. <laughs> well, we figured it out. Yeah, we, had, we went back to the PR people. I can't, yeah. Yeah, we just, I, I I mean, it seems like the kind of thing, like, that sounds like a bullshit story, but I'm, I'm contacting his press people going, I know this sounds like, I'm like, but John Carpenter said that we could meet him backstage, so yeah. can we meet him? <laughs> they're like, yeah, no problem. And so, and, and I'm, I'm telling you, like, when we go to the show in Toronto, I'm telling Jeff, this isn't going to happen, man. This is bullshit. And, you know, he gave me some guy, I'm supposed to text him, he's not going to text me back. And sure enough, he texts me back. Yeah, meet me at the front of the stage to the left or whatever. And so we he we met him after the show and he brought us backstage to meet John Carpenter. He looked very tired and uh but he was a nice guy, yeah. you know, he gave us minutes of his time. I brought my 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 uh vinyl soundtrack of the thing oh. for him to sign and uh and it was great that's a great 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 moment that came out of this I, I did make you know the social mistake as i often do um of you know realizing oh it's john carpenter what am i going to talk to him about in the three minutes that we have with him and he's really tired so i said well where are you going next he's obviously off to montreal i said oh montreal 
you should go get smoked meat at the main. They do a combination of, you know, tongue sandwich and smoked meat. And he just kind of looked at me and went, ugh. And that was my minute with John Carpenter. <laughs> but I really like tongue sandwich. I think it's sandwich of kings. <laughs> I'm sure he was, I'm sure what he really wanted to hear was yet another question about Halloween. Oh, yeah, fair. Yeah. Aaron, just just out of curiosity, <laughs> is there a favorite John Carpenter album that you would just pop at the top? Okay, so this isn't even a question. My number one favorite, absolutely, Assault and Priest oh, routine. I just my family. Yep, do 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 do. It's just it's in my head all the time. It's my absolute favorite. It's a it's a slowed down version of um, Led Zeppelin's "The Immigrant Song." Think about the if you blow that right down it's it's uh assault on priest in 13 and it's just it's so dreamy like i love the synth that comes in in between that it's like i say like i don't need to do drugs because i can just listen to that music but there's so many like 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 uh escape from new york mm-hmm. is an incredible record oh it's so 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 good um we drove to New York city to see him, uh, the first one of his first shows of his tour. And we drove 14 hours because it was just this hell ride getting through construction and various automobile accidents and everything like that. But it was, it was absolutely worth it. It's just, I feel sad because he's the last remaining of the big four, right? Wes Craven, George Romero, Toby Hooper, John Carpenter. And when he leaves, I really feel like that's going to be the end end of an era in uh you talk about george romero i mean i really enjoyed diving into the music for his movies um which is interesting because so much of it is you know he didn't have the budget you know carpenter did his own music because he didn't have a budget to hire a composer he just became one but george romero didn't even have a budget to do they they tried doing it themselves and it it kind of sucked so they used libraries but there's so much like great library music. Um, and I was, I remember we tried to profile, like I have a whole section on libraries in the book that ultimately didn't come through, but I really liked, you know, the music in the living dead films that come yeah. from, you know, a source of just an array of different composers <laughs> that you would never know their names unless you were into library music, but um, it pops up all over the place and it works. He's so good at picking the right cue for the right scene of those movies. Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's the kind of like, see, that's the kind of thing, the sort of dynamic that, that helped make this book happen because we get excited over like the geekiest shit in the world. So Jeff will start talking about, oh, the library music and then a living dead. And then, and then last night in my attic, I was sitting there listening to the soundtrack to the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead. Um, and just reading all about that, because, of course, like Jeff said, the original Night of the Living Dead was an independent film, micro budget movie. They just used library music. I think it was from what Teenagers uh, from Mars or what, what was that movie uh, called that they took the music? I, I could check. The it was teenage- well, you know, you could talk, <laughs> Teenagers from yeah, Space. Yeah, There's a few of them. Teenagers from Space or something like that is I think is I think where that music came from. But then in, in 1990, when Tom Savini remade Night of the Living Dead, uh, which was also a low budget film, I think its budget was like 4.5 million, which in 1990 
wasn't huge. Uh, they hired the guy that they hired to do the music was the guy that wrote the original script for the crazies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so like, like George Romero was exactly like John Carpenter in the sense that everyone was part of the same stable. They, they, you know what I mean? Like the way you got a job in a George Romero movie is because you knew George Romero somehow. And uh, the score for the, the Night of the Living Dead remake isn't great, but there is a great, 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 like you want to talk about music being married to image. The beginning of the Night of the Living Dead remake, there's a scene where uh, the, the sun is setting over the trees and there's this really, really creepy synth music that's playing over top of it. That's a great, great piece of music. Really creepy. And it's, and it's, it's a, an underrated remake. Yeah. You know what I mean? But those are the kinds of things that no one, no one ever really talks about that kind of stuff, but Jeff and I can geek out about it. And so that's what, that's what kind of made this book really fun. You know what I mean? Like I almost, in a way, like I was so happy when it ended because it was such a long process, but at the same time, I didn't want it to end because yeah. you know what I mean? Like yeah. want to keep there. You just want to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper. And I think that that's the thing with horror movie fans that makes them a little bit different. Right. Is I always say this, that horror movie fans are a little bit different because they don't just want to, you know, go to the movie and then watch it and then go home. No, they want to own the movie on Blu-ray. They want to own a library of movies. They want to own the poster. They want to get the Fright Rags t-shirt. They want to get a tattoo of their favorite horror movie on them, says the guy with a Fright Night tattoo <laughs> on my arm. Uh, and, uh, and so you, you, you just have to go deeper and deeper. And, and, and you can't go deep enough when you love horror movies. You just got to go as deep as you possibly can to the point that you're talking about the soundtrack to the 1990 Night of the Dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and so it's, and so it's, that's the kind of audience that we really, really wanted to reach with this book, which isn't hard to do, right? Because the horror community is super mm -hmm. passionate. But I think it's also, it's, it's a, the book itself, at least I found, it's a great resource, not just for fans of, of horror generally. You guys you cover so much detail in history behind just the genre as a whole. Like I said, you cover like Italian horror, which is a whole subsection of horror that a lot yeah. of people know very little about, other than they usually Italian horror films had really weird soundtracks. <laughs> because they were trying to yeah. take their movies and then market them for North America, which was a whole other <laughs> nightmare of horror. The Italian chapter was really important to me uh, personally because I love Italian horror movies because they're just, that's an era of filmmaking that will never exist yeah. again, right? Where you, we were talking about it before this podcast started, you know, you guys were talking about Suspiria and style over substance and horror, Italian horror films like I'd say 90% of them are style over substance, right? Awesome. They're just beautiful movies, beautiful people, beautiful, you know, um, uh, clothes that they're wearing, uh, the cinematography, the colors. And of course the music, the music is so vibrant in Italian horror films, really all Italian films, but Italian horror films for sure. It's such a big part of it. And I love the fact that all these people like Goblin, Goblin's whole career was so married to, Dario Argento and Fabio Fritzi was so married to um, Lucio Fulci. And so I think that that's one where the publisher in 1984 was kind of like, eh, Italian horror, like most horror fans aren't going to even know what this is. They're going to skip over it. And I was like, no, we, we have to have a chapter just on Italian horror because you think about horror soundtracks, the big names are John Carpenter, Goblin, Fabio Fritzi, like after John Carpenter, it's really, it's, it's the Italian guys because they put so much effort into, into the music, which makes sense because 
those <clears throat> films were not really about a plot. They were just these art pieces, yeah. right? And the music was a big yeah, piece of that. Better. Mm-hmm. I think another thing I like about the, the way that we worked also is that Aaron was really passionate about Italian horror. And for me, it was, you know, I, I certainly knew some of them, but I had to go on a bit of a learning curve. Like I'd never seen... There were a few that I hadn't seen that I, I was writing about the music. Um, Caltiki was one of them, for example. Um, but but on the other hand, I know that I probably brought my love of like old horror scores, like Bride of Frankenstein, um, all the old Hammer films. Um, you know, I know that Jaws is a big one. So uh, I think you know, one thing that worked out well is when we were kind of divvying up who was going to write about what, we often could, you know, it became a nice even split. I think there were things that we each really liked and were passionate about. And there were ones that obviously that were shared, shared movies and shared films that we were both interested in. But I think that our interests within the horror world were diverse enough that it meant that we were covering a lot of ground uh, without having to go. Yeah, it was deep. good. It was kind of fortuitous how, how that all kind of worked out because even though we share a lot of the same passions, I think that... Jeff has certain things that he, like we were talking before this about, you know, Rocky Horror and shock treatment. Honestly, like, uh, I don't even think I actually own Rocky Horror. It's just kind of one of those things that I know what it is and I don't really, it's not something that like I'm as passionate about, but that's okay because Jeff is super passionate about it. And then, you know, I want to nerd out about, you know, this, you know, Cannibal Holocaust soundtrack and Resort Alani and stuff like that. So it, it really, really worked out, you know, in that, in, in that regard. Um, but on, on the other hand, like we were dealing with so many soundtracks that I just said, you know, whatever you want to do, you do it because if you do 50%, the other 50% is going to be just as awesome as the other 50%. Yeah. <laughs> and, and there's so much variety. Like I think Eric was talking about, aliens right and that's the kind of thing that i want people to get out of this book is is um you know aliens is a great film and uh the soundtrack by james horner was really a um it, 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 it there's 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 a very very interesting story behind the music for the alien films because both alien and aliens in alien it was jerry goldsmith who's obviously a legend in uh, Hollywood uh, film film composing. Everybody knows who Jerry Goldsmith was, but Ridley Scott didn't want Jerry Goldsmith at all. He was sort of like, nah, I don't want this old you know Hollywood guy. I'm on the block. He had you know something to prove and everything like that. And uh, and and it ended up being this whole sort of nightmare scenario for Jerry Goldsmith. And if you read this story, it's super interesting. The funny thing is, the exact same thing happened with Aliens. They hired. James Horner, who was also an accomplished composer, and uh, James Horner and James Cameron had these famous wars with each other. There's rumors about James Cameron actually putting James Horner up against the wall and, like, you know, fighting with him in the in the editing room and everything like that. But that score for Aliens really became like a a sort of I, I don't want to say it sort of set the bar for anything, but it was a really um, stock kind of action. <laughs> horror sci-fi horror um hybrid soundtrack it, it it sort of set, set set a template that a lot of others followed um similar to predator predator was very influential as well mm-hmm. with all the percussion and everything you hear that music in a lot of trailers from the era 
Yeah. 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 I couldn't believe it. Like yeah. um, in the book, it mentions how the track from aliens was used in the trailer for uh die hard. Yeah. And I yeah. like, I didn't, I didn't right knew that. Like I, I had a sense memory of seeing that trailer and being like, Oh my gosh, that's what that track is. And I had never put <laughs> the two and two together. <laughs> And it, it was like a retcon on the last 25 years of my life. <laughs> um, Mr. Spears, is there any other, were there any other uh, soundtracks that were covered that really caught your attention as well? And things that you, you liked to, to learn about in this glorious book? Oh gosh, so many. Um, growing up in proximity uh, to Jeff, the influence of these films was inescapable. Um, so just looking at the album covers reminded me of posters uh, Jeff, that used to hang in your room. Oh yeah, <laughs> like the, the, intense. the Kong soundtracks, especially. Like I remember you had a huge like Kong Libs poster. Yeah. Um, in your room, and it really got that, brought- that poster lives at Room Org Magazine now. I have no space for it in my house. To preserve <laughs> oh, well, it, it belongs in a museum. <laughs> Was, is that the original King, King Kong? King Kong Lives. Uh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. King Kong Lives, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's a like that's a movie that as a kid I wanted to see so bad, right? Movies just seemed really big in the eighties. Although was was that eighties or was that seventy nine? No, that's eighty something. Yeah, that's eighty something. Yeah, King. No, no, sorry. The King Kong remake was seventy nine, right? There was a King Kong seventies. Yeah, yeah. And then there was King Kong seventy six. John Barry. Yeah, John Barry. I do. I have that one with uh, King Kong kind of straddling the the twin towers. No, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, and uh, uh, but yeah, King Kong lives. I can remember that being a movie that was just like, oh my god, there's a new King Kong. This just has to be the best movie ever made. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it just seems so huge back then. Oh, sure, absolutely. But but now it's like there's eight big movies a week, kind of thing. I mean, <laughs> we we say this as Godzilla, King of Monsters, is currently like stomping <laughs> the box office. Yeah. Is it out this week? Yeah, yeah, it, it came, out. came out yesterday. Yeah. Yeah, I have a baby, so I no longer go to the movies. Yeah. <laughs> My six-year-old wants to go see King Kong because there was a trailer for it for Detective Pikachu. Um, King Kong or Godzilla? Uh, oh, sorry, Godzilla. Yeah, yeah, they had some uh, weird trailers before Pikachu, which was. Well, yeah. I, it was a Ryan Reynolds movie that pretty much all bets are off at that point. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, exactly. Like at the. I think just like maybe a minute before the end of that trailer, you get the one scene of like the two soldiers in the control room. And the one is like, it's Godzilla's world. We just live in it. And the other one's like, you're damn right. And I'm looking over at my six-year-old being like, oh, what vocab has just entered our household? <laughs> well, thanks, Pikachu. <laughs> you know, it's, I just watched the, the bus ad for the new Shaft film uh, that my kids could not read. It's, you know, what is it? It's like, too much shaft for you to handle, or <laughs> they're not even trying to deal with it. But yeah, yeah, oh, it's great. Also, I'm, I'm I was really disappointed that they felt the need to go back to that well again. Uh, yeah, yeah, that seems to be especially 19 years after the last one. Yeah, well, we'll have to we'll have to cover some. I don't even know how to approach. Yeah, it. Well, movies with great soundtracks, although not a horror soundtrack. No, yeah, it, it does. Fair. That series has always had a great soundtrack, if nothing else. They really had good music. Nice. Good way to bring it back. <sighs> <laughs> and we do cover Blackula. 
Uh, yes, you do. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You got the black exploitation in there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, you man. have to. Age. Um, Spears, were there any other soundtracks that were covered uh, that really that really caught your eye? Well, I think more than anything else, and especially going back to um, when I was this gawky little kid hanging out in Jeff's living room, was the uh, the Jaws soundtracks. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, just to see those images again and to read the like the the Williams interviews about the craft and the the overarching philosophy behind that like that iconic like the dun dun like I remember being a little kid sitting in Jeff's living room watching frame by frame Jaws 3D um, as he pointed oh, out yeah yeah where the grenade detonates and you can yep. see the guts of the shark exploding towards the screen yeah yeah the jaws literally fly out at you oh yeah you get to see the 3d print of it yeah and then yeah. i mean much later like as a, as a like as a student of film myself and then later as a teacher and just like coming back to the movie older just the, the, the craftsmanship behind the the orchestration in that piece and the way that Spielberg like wields it in editing was is just stunning. And as I'm reading this book, like all of this is kind of coming back to me. Oh no, I think absolutely, especially with the like the, the with the Williams score for for Jaws, there is never really there are few, especially in horror, more iconic sequences than that Jaws theme. Mm-hmm. Like you know, those, I think even if you hear something similar to those notes, you know what that's meant to mean. Yeah, because you can you even if you've for some reason never seen Jaws, like there must be some guy that's never seen Jaws. If you ever go, <laughs> everybody knows what that means, right? Yeah, they, yeah. They, yeah. It's, it's right up there with the Friday the Thirteenth soundtrack with the you know the kick 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 kick. Like people, you, they hear that you like you know someone's gonna get killed. That's what you yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the and the the shower scene, the psycho, the yeah, psycho, yeah, like those. Those are, I think, the three most iconic horror horror thriller uh, musical runs where you can just identify what the tone is when you hear that. The shark theme for Jaws, I I still say it's the scariest mu- music ever written because as a kid, man, did that scare me when I heard that yeah. music. It, <laughs> it scared me in a way that I wish I could still get scared today. I wish I could still have that, that same feeling. Because it was like, oh my god, I'm so terrified. And what would that movie have been without the music? It wouldn't have been. Oh well, it still would have been. I should. Really I should okay. Like, but but the music was pretty damn important to it. Oh, absolutely. And, and the thing is, it's not always horror music per se. A lot of it is adventure music. The mm-hmm. that movie is a movie of like two halves. The first half is a horror film where people are getting eaten, you know, by the beach. And the second half of the movie is three guys on a boat going after a shark. And it's like this pirate adventure music yeah. that, you know, takes over. And, and I think it actually, and but they still have the Jaws theme running through it, but they do different things. Like they invert the ostinato. Um, it, it's, it's never like a one trick pony that score. There's always something new going on. Um, and I think that's why it, it still works so well today. And, and you could listen to it on its own, and it's a great score from you know beginning of side A to the end of side B. Yeah. If you have, uh, we were lucky to get uh, Alan Parker uh, a few quotes from him. Uh, he did Jaws three. I think he was a session. Uh, in my research, I think he's the guy who plays the guitar lick 
for Rebel Rebel, the David Bowie song. Um, <laughs> but he also wrote uh, Jaws 3. And, you know, sometimes when you get somebody and you're asking them, you know, questions and they may or may not have a lot of interesting things to say, but he actually could speak to the challenges of writing for like the mother shark and the baby shark and how we can try to orchestrate differently. I thought, you know, that's something that as somebody who would want to read the book is something I had no idea was even something he was thinking about on an orchestral level. And it's neat to sort of address that in the book. Oh no, I remember reading that that chapter and I sat and in my head I was going back and I was like, that's exactly what, because I knew there was always something that was different about it, yeah. but it never registered. And then I was like, that's what it was. Cause you could tell mm-hmm. the difference. Cause you know, the baby shark was smaller. So they used lighter instrumentation. When you bring in big mama, all of a sudden they really, really made it deep and menacing. I was like, Oh, that's what it is. Here's a question though. And it's a very important question. Mm-hmm. What's the worst Jaws movie ever made? okay i i see your four i think it's unanimous oh controversy well i i switched to what was aaron's film two just okay can't you see me jeff what i can see you now (laughs) two i um I, I sorry, I'll rephrase that. I love the second half of Jaws two. When it's when it's just dealing with the kids on the boats, that half of the story I think is great. The first half I, I usually skip, to be honest. Like I'll I can take it or leave. I don't really care that much. Like part, I mean, part four is is indefensible. I mean, it's it, it's it's obviously <laughs> people's getting like chewed to death by the shark, but it's okay. He's still alive at the end. Yeah. But it, but uh, but um. But part two, the reason why part two is because after the epicness that is part one, part two is this PG movie, you know, like all the deaths are off camera and the effects are terrible and it's, it's boring. I I just think it's a boring movie. At least part four gives you that slight entertainment value of like, holy shit. You should check out how fucking bad this. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. I'd say, like, I think the, the opening sequence in Jaws four, I thought was great when you have oh, yeah, you know yeah. the, like Sean on the boat and you don't and it goes back to what they did with one where you don't see anything and what you don't see is way more terrifying. And then everything after that, I was just like, oh, stop, please. Oh, this it's it's, it's, it's doing like make it. I know, like in like why is Michael Caine in it? And Because <laughs> yeah. he has that Jeremy Irons Dungeons and Dragons glazed over paycheck look in that movie. Yeah. That's his name on the toilet. Okay. He loves the house that Jaws 4 bought. Yeah. That basically. Uh, like but, yeah. Let's just say the script moved him to a bigger house. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, like most of the actors in that you could tell they were like, well, I sure. I mean, the other three sold, so it's paycheck. Cool. Yeah, why not? <laughs> yeah, like, why not? It's like, so I get eaten by the shark, but I'm actually alive. Why not? Okay. When they finally get around to doing Jaws 4 in like 4K or whatever, that's what they should put on the box, man. Like, indefensible. That should be right there on the cover. I think it's funny that you think you think they're going to put that in 4K. Yeah, that's, that's the real joke. <laughs> 
man. Like the effects barely hold up in standard resolution. You put that in 4K, everyone's like, wow, that that was just tissue paper and paper mache. Huh? <laughs> a little bit of duct tape <laughs> and popsicle sticks. <laughs> I have a picture of myself beside the shark from Jaws 4. They used to have it at uh, Universal Studios Orlando. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, it nice. disintegrated, but you know. yes. Wait, wait, wait. It wasn't the shark that came out of the water on the ride, was it? No, 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 no. It was the one. It was one of the ones from the movie. Yeah. Oh wow! Yeah, they, they did. Have, they had that and prop. some Edward Scissorhands trees. Yeah. Oh well, no. I was just going to say before, like uh, about you know soundtracks and whatnot uh, that uh, sort of jumped out. I, I wanted to say in case uh, you know I forget because uh, I'm sleep deprived right now. Um, <laughs> the, the sheer breadth of the book. Uh, surprise me. Um, I'm uh, I'm a little bit kind of the opposite of uh, Eric in regards to horror movies. Um, I guess I'm a bit of a masochist. Uh, when I find a horror movie <laughs> that that really uh, that really affects me, um, that it really affects my mood in horrible negative ways, I just keep going back to it because there's just something about the depths that an effective horror movie uh, will plumb that really uh really interest me so so from that from that perspective um i'm also not as musically inclined um as as eric so uh, i'm aware of soundtracks but uh, especially in the most effective horror movies um those those tones those motifs um i just i love revisiting them so i will get the soundtracks for the most disturbing in my opinion horror movies and just replay them so um I approach the book more from the perspective of somebody who is very peripherally aware of soundtracks, but um, I loved just the sheer breadth of the book. Like there were so many movies that um, I immediately recognized uh, just, I could, I could hear the sound of them. And then so many more that I'd never heard of before. So like, I, I just have to say as a horror movie fan, as a movie fan, um, I, I love what you guys did. Um, I mean, you guys have already sort of covered it. I mean, this was a passion project for both of you. Um, you came at it from slightly, you know, different collections. And I, I think that just that whole, you know, bring together of this love of, of uh, scores is, is just a wonderful a love letter to the, you know, to that aspect of film. So anyway, that's just wanted to thank you guys. Yeah, no, I I just think it's amazing. So I need to go back through even just, just trying to like go through the book and think of one or two, like of the entries that you guys put in that I wanted to talk about uh, was, was trying because there were so many. Um, I think, I think that my main takeaway though is, is uh, I need to revisit a lot of these earlier movies that uh, I saw when I was way too young to be cognizant of things like the soundtrack, which, Definitely left an impression, but I just don't remember the movies that well. So I got to go back now and just rewatch everything. Um, yeah, it's, and and I'm 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 the same way. Like I mean, so many old horror films. I didn't. When you're younger, you're not so sophisticated enough that you're going to pay attention to the soundtrack. Exactly. Even some, even some of the, the even some of the the earlier Carpenter films. But then you look at a movie like Forbidden World. Mm. If you just listen to the Forbidden World score, it's a great record. It's great. Yeah. It's, it's this. It's this woman that was, and and that's weird too. Having a female composer for an old hockey Roger yeah. Corman. You know what I mean, like you don't see that very often. It's just an interesting tidbit. But she played in some new wave band that I can't even think of what the band was called anymore. They weren't very big, and uh, it's a great record. It's just like a great, you know, a great theme, a great motif that repeats throughout it, and it's. It's uh, this music is like that's that's one of the big takeaways that we want people to have is that this music can be enjoyed on its own. It can be enjoyed um, the same way again that whatever music you're into, 
whether it's like rock or metal or punk or whatever, you know, I, I, I listen, you know, like some people want the new Chris Isaac album. I want the new Christopher Young album. <laughs> sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that that definitely does come across to me um, because uh, especially because I like to revisit the films that are the most effective uh, on my psyche. Um, being able to read just a little bit about what the process was for the creation of these scores um, helped, I think, clarify uh, why the music in particular um, added to that uh, experience. Like, I already know I love Hellraiser, but it was really interesting to read Christopher Young's, um, you know, uh, you know what he says about the, the process of, of working with Clive Barker and what Barker insisted, you know, needed to be, you know, the focus, you know, of, uh, of that score. And, uh, and likewise, um, I mean, for me, the most, uh, most powerful horror movie score right now for me is uh, under the skin and, and reading about again, the tech, the technical uh, things that they did uh, and, and why they did it to, to give that film that very unsettling, distorted, you know, sensation. Um, I don't know, just these, these are, these are the types of details that, you know, as someone who, who loves those films, uh, I, I just, I relish, you know, finding out why I love them so much, you know, mm-hmm. I was really, I'm glad that you mentioned Under the Skin. I remember that's a oh, movie that's where, yeah, I think that and it follows, which actually doesn't appear in the book, but those are movies where the music plays such a crucial, I think yeah. such a crucial role to making that movie what it is. I mean, and, and but also the, it's Under the Skin is a unique sounding score. Like it doesn't sound like anything else. Mm-hmm. There are some horror scores that they, they are of a piece with it sounds like it's a horror movie. It sounds yeah. like horror movie A, B, and C, but under the skin, it's very distinctive. Um, and, you know, it's a sex, it's kind of, this, it plays this line between being sexy and scary with, the, you know, the, the use of the instruments and that kind of, um, it almost like there's a muted quality and fidelity to the sound. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds like when you get tinnitus, uh, when you come out of a club and it has that sound to it, that, um, yeah. I think, I think truthfully, we're, we're, cause when you talk to horror fans, right, we all tend to be retro nostalgia geeks. It's always about the older films were the best films, you know what I mean? Like eighties films were, 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 were the best movies. And same thing with the soundtracks. If you ask people to name your favorite soundtracks, it's going to be movies from the seventies and eighties. But I honestly think that we are in a creative peak right now. When you look at horror films, the horror soundtracks have like, it's, there's more room for creativity uh, for composers today than ever before. If you look at movies like It Follows, uh, Under the Skin, like you said, then uh, uh, Stranger Things, which was sort of like very accessible. Mm-hmm. There's so much going on right now for horror composers. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic. Like it's fantastic that, uh, that um, there's a lot of effort being put into it. But, but there's all these, you know, the, these live scores going on now and everything like that, that people want to hear the music uh, played live. I saw one for Psycho. Jeff and I saw one oh, for John. Wow. There's one for Ghostbusters coming up. Yeah, yeah. I see those posters all over the TTC. <laughs> it's interesting that you know that was never a thing. I remember going to see years ago Alexander Nevsky at the film festival, and it was this you know it was unheard of that you would get to go see a movie with a live score. I mean, and that's but 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 a lot of these symphonies now, like um, I'm. I'm I'm moving to Kitchener. I looked on at the uh, 
you know, what the kids are simply doing. They were playing ET live to film. I think, uh, people I think of our age who, you know, grew up in an era where symphonic music was synonymous with, you know, genre films. I mean, the sci-fi movies and fantasy films and the horror films where they had, they allocated money to, to composers and to symphonies. Not only that, but they also gave the music space to be heard in the movie, not buried under, you know, the sort of cacophony of sound mix that, you know, you listen to Jaws or, or Star Wars, like they give the, they give the, they give that score a place to be heard in the film. Yeah. Um, and, and I don't, that's not the case with movies today. It, there, there are more tracks, but there's not the same amount of space. And I think those movies are playing again because we remember that music because we could hear it in the movie. Um, and I would argue that actually that a horror film the same level of care is often given to the placement of sound and music yeah. and silence. And, and when we're hearing something or we're not hearing something because there's a tension there and that helps to drive the movie's tension. Uh, the, the rhythm of, this, the, of the editing and the sound um, really are, I think, what make a horror movie sink or swim uh, or, you know, and work and be scary. And um, I, I think that going, you know, there's about 200 and some odd scores covered in the book. And when you, when you listen to all of them, I mean, some of those scores are designed to be scary. Some of them are designed to be art pieces. Um, mm. Certainly like I think about Tangerine Dream for Firestarter or Near Dark, that music right. isn't really made to be scary. It's, it, but it gives that movie a vibe um, and a feel that make it otherworldly and kind of ethereal. Um, but it also- it's Sorry, the same. It, it, it just it, it gives it that epic feel that, like, say, Howard Shore did with Silence of the Lambs. Mm -hmm. It made it more than a police procedural film. It made it this. It, it made you made you feel how big this thing is that's happening. Mm -hmm. It's it's funny you mentioned Nevsky because I ended. I was actually um, in a choir that sang that with the Hamilton oh, nice. Philharmonic <laughs> fifteen or sixteen years ago. Wow! And that show was so popular. Just having like a movie and then. The, the live orchestra and choral uh, choir that they ended up doing more of these series. And I know a lot of the, you, you see a lot of those tours around now. Um, yeah. I think it, I think at least around here, it really gained popularity when Lord of the Rings did their yeah. um, movie slash um, orchestra tour. And then live tour, to, yeah, yeah the, they ended up bringing star Wars uh, in concert, which I got to sing with as well. Um, so it, it was a, it was a neat, time like it was very exciting because they were bringing local people in to to do that but you getting like these big composers to come and conduct so that was that was neat um going back to the 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 process of you know um making a, a horror score um i remember debating with a professor in university i was in music for film and television and um in one of those courses and the the professor did not like horror film like at least he did not like the scores of it, which I thought was a little weird because he said that a lot, at least he, he was older. So a lot of his, the older films that he grew up watching horror wise, um, there was a lot of Mickey mousing where the, the music sort of mimics, um, mimics what's going on. on in the, the, and that sort of ruined the, the, the listening experience for him. I, I, I has, has anything like that happened with any of you guys? Like I, I, it never bothered me. I, it, it reminds me of special moments in the, in the film. I think the thing is that if you're a horror fan, 
that's not going to bother you because you like what's going on in the movie. So yeah. it's like, yeah, this is the cool part of the score because it's imitating what's going on in the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it, 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 it comes back to the level of passion that, that horror films have for the medium, right? Like if you love horror films that much, you love the music because the music is a part of what makes that movie so great. Mm. You, whether it's, you know, the super Roger <laughs> Corman movie that's using a lo-fi synth score or, um, you know, something really grandiose, like you say, like the classic universal horrors or James Bernard's scores for the Hammer films. I mean, and I'll, I'll throw the counter argument because I think I had a similar argument with, uh, I don't think it was the same prof in that class, but I definitely had a very similar argument of the horror score versus others where it was the, you know, the, the accusation of, well, horror films just have these Mickey Mousing moments. And I said, okay, but what makes that different from any uh, romantic drama that exists out there right now? Because you listen to a romantic drama soundtrack, you know when the romantic bits happen because of the big orchestral swell like yeah. that, and having never seen the movie, know exactly what's happening. Based you know on she's the- taking her glasses off. Exactly. <laughs> you mean she's beautiful? No yeah, ponytail. It, it was the same. It was the same. Non- it was the same kind of thing. Like you can't go after one genre for doing that when other genres are just as guilty of it, just because you have an issue with horror films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Jeff. Oh, I was just. And I, I think comedy. Whenever there's like a light romantic comedy there mm-hmm. there is a style of music that plays like this very plucky string music because mm-hmm. and it never it's never makes the movie funny you no. can take that away <laughs> often yeah. usually comedy is funny when you actually have it in wide shot and you're seeing how people react to each other mm-hmm. it's never the music in a comedy yeah. that makes you laugh but so many movies they know they have to put music under it somehow mm-hmm. and it's always the same music yeah. and it's it drives me nuts I mean, I know some people would argue that a horror movie kind of sounds the same because a lot of it's not tonal. But but within that, if you really listen to it, there are weird sounds that that make it into horror films uh, yeah. and very unusual things that are done that are kind of notable. Yeah. Um, oh yeah, I mean, Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two has whale whale song in it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's there's so, so much experimentation. Well, that's yeah. it. I think there's, I've often found, especially with horror soundtracks, it's the most experimentation, the most unique yeah. sets of yeah. instruments used to create these effects. Like uh, when you guys were talking about like the serpent and the rainbow. Yeah. Uh, where you talk, where it turned into almost exclusively like voodoo percussion. percussion. Yeah. yeah. Just totally. to create that tone, which is not something you would see in, you know, you know, the notebook. It's not a thing you're going <laughs> to see them playing with therapy yeah. in yeah. a romantic comedy because it's it doesn't suit the vibe of that, whereas with horror, you can play with whatever you want. And if it evokes that tension, like really all, all exactly. you need for a horror film soundtrack is the appropriate tension at the appropriate points. Yeah. How you get to that is entirely up to the composer. Mm-hmm. Whereas every other genre, I find there's a certain, a certain formulaic aspect that, you know, you have to use this type of, these type of tones and these type of instruments to get the effect you need. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and I think, the other thing too is that is that the horror genre is not one genre. That's the thing. Like the horror genre is many many genres. Because when you think about it, how many horror movies are even scary? Right? There's not that many. How many horror movies are intended to be scary? Like, is Reanimator supposed to be scary? I don't think so. I think it's supposed to be maybe kind of gross and over the top, funny. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, there's a real difference between 
you know, Evil Dead and The Bride of Frankenstein and, um, you know, Aliens or something like that. Like, those are yeah. three very different movies with a very different direction. And they welcome a very, very different uh, musical interpretation every single time, right? Absolutely. So there, there is definitely, um, even though, you know, like the horror genre definitely follows certain thematic patterns uh, as all genres do, but they're very different film in terms of the tone and in terms of uh, the direction of the audience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, Matt, um, Matt, were there were there any albums in this book that you wanted to go over? I know we went over a lot of the the different ones, but we, you being the a, horror guy in our in our, we, in our we've group. we've covered a lot. Uh, there's there was a couple that I wanted to get to. Uh, I I was so so happy to see you guys cover the works of uh, Joseph Bishara. Because I'm yes. a huge mark for for the James Wan Insidious Conjuring universes, I've openly admitted that. Uh, I loved that that chapter was there. So that made me so happy because again, that's like that's what it kind of goes back to what I was saying before. It's it's appropriate tension at the appropriate yeah. times. That was a fun interview. Yeah. Um, Aaron hooked it up, uh, set it up, but I ended up doing it because couldn't I forget why it worked out that way. But I never I had to prep for it and I so I had the conjuring soundtrack and I, I listened to it on a CD in the car and um but I you know I get up at 5 30 in the morning and drive to school up in York region. So it was a just like a terrible snowstorm and I had the conjuring music playing really loudly <laughs> in the car as I'm like going up Allen Road and it's, it's just it's it's in my head and like I'm yeah. I'm struggling to get through the snowstorm and get to school and listen to the conjuring <laughs> and I listen to the whole soundtrack and I get it on my car and then I, I I'm working with a group of seven year olds and the the gulf that exists between the conjuring soundtrack and TT grade two <laughs> is pretty pretty intense. Yeah. And I remember Love bringing crap. it up to Joseph Fisharo I was saying, you know, I your music became the start of my day with a group of seven-year-olds. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. I will say, though, in terms of, like, music uh, to turn all the lights off in the room and freak yourself out to, The Conjuring, or excuse me, uh, Insidious, the Insidious yes. by Joseph Beshera is terrifying. Yeah. Mm. It is scary, man. Yeah. It is yeah. scary. <laughs> yeah. All those, all those violins. Yeah. <laughs> Just... Let's do it, Eric. Come on. No, no, oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do it. We'll hide in your tent. <laughs> um, but that was there, like I said, and the the, the whole the Jaws soundtracks, because I have a very unique relationship with those series of films based off my having seen the first one when I was eight. Um, the right age. It was a great age for that. Traumatized me for a long time. Got no over more it. toilets. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna find. I have that photo somewhere. I will find the picture of that my dad took of me on the Jaws ride at Universal, where I'm just straight white knuckling it the entire time, <laughs> <laughs> like having awesome. like knowing what was coming, and I was like, like, and this I was like in my 20s when I went on that ride. <laughs> How late yeah. in life. <laughs> <laughs> amazing That's okay amazing. eric you don't get to be all tense about the insidious soundtrack and then no so- no i i'm more laughing that i i would n- never um expect you to you know there are to few, be like that <laughs> there are a few things that will elicit that response from me the grudge 
is one of them. Jaws is the other one. Yeah, I remember you taking to me, taking me to horror films, like me, you, and Mallory, and yeah. and Jen. And I'm just like, okay, that's cool. At least I wasn't the most scared out of the four of us because we had Mallory with us. But <laughs> I also I also have really good memories of uh, moving into this apartment in Toronto. And I was unpacking one night and I'd unpacked my turntable. So I put on some records to yeah. unpack to. And I put on the Halloween three soundtrack. Uh-huh. <laughs> that scared the shit out of me. Yeah. Like, like being all alone in this new apartment where nothing was familiar to me. Yeah. That scared the crap out of me. Halloween and three had a great soundtrack. It, it does. Great, great soundtrack. Yeah. After part one, part three is the best one. Yeah. Um, the other thing I, I, I needed to give a shout out to just because it's, it's part of my other, uh, geekdom is, uh, is the, the chunk you had on, uh, Paul Williams work in Phantom of the Paradise. Yes. Cause the, it's especially nothing, nothing makes me happier as a horror nerd and a musical nerd than to see those two things melded on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> And Paul Williams is one of those. I was familiar with him because I was also a huge fan of The Muppet Show when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So I'd seen him on that show, but had no context for like other than, oh, he sings some songs and he's really short. Cool. And then I came across Phantom of the Paradise and I watched that. I'm like, okay, he's he's evil and creepy. And then I realized, oh, crap, he wrote all the music for this, too. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and that then was... kind of rabbit hole down into <clears throat> Paul Williams' body of work from there and was like this guy's a great songwriter yeah he's a genius yeah, yeah. over time that movie has just moved on to become I think, my one of my favorite movies of yeah. all time i think it's just and i discovered it you know through the album art uh dundas public library had a copy of it yeah and i, and I was just flipping through you know the record section and you see the cover and you go what the heck is yeah. this thing <laughs> and without even knowing too much about the movie i think i ended up eventually then seeing a clip of it in a movie called uh, Terror in the Isles, which was a compilation of horror movie clips that they put out in the sort of mid 80s, um, which also made the movies just seem amazing. It was this guy in a really weird mask yeah. getting a toilet plunger into his face in, in sort of a mimicking psycho. Uh, and then finally seeing it like a very fuzzy, you know, back in the days when TVs would get fuzz, I got a really fuzzy copy off of, I think, City, T- City TV. Um, right. But I, that movie is, the, I think what's great about Pam of the Paradise is the, the songs are really well put together. He's really good at changing the style, the genre of the, of the theme. So it's, you know, it, it sounds like the Beach Boys sometimes. And then, and then it sounds like, you know, what would eventually become kind of Kiss, this glam rock scene. Yeah. Um, but a lot of the songs that the heart and soul of that movie are in these very sad romantic songs um, that sort of sell the love story of that movie better than I think De Palma can do because De Palma's <laughs> you know, visuals are so over the top and the movie is yeah. so so stylized that the actual characters kind of drown in the movie. But but the look of it and the and the songs really sell the story. Uh, they're they're great songs. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, um, going off the the whole horror musical thing, um, I know me and Matt back in like 2008, we we remember hearing these rumors about uh, Repo, the genetic opera, being made into a film, and it was sort of that one of those VHS movies that got passed around with horror musical people. I know me and you, Matt, we saw a VHS copy of the stage show. Yep. Oh, God, years and years ago. Um, yeah. 
what what are your thoughts on that? Like, I know that it became sort of a cult horror uh, musical type show. Um, yeah, I just wanted to know because I, I love the music, but you know, I will I will say I don't have a a, a ton of like. Jeff's more of the the musical guy than I am, but um, my uh, girlfriend's daughter uh, has discovered horror musicals, and she discovered Repo, and she's just in love with it. She's a uh, ten, and just like she, <laughs> like she she just watches. I had uh, the Devil's Carnival on um, on DVD, so I showed that to her, and she seemed to be pretty into it as well. So has it's, she, has it's seen the, the second part of that. The second part of the Devil's Carnival. Yeah. No, I didn't know there was one. He did a sequel called Hallelujah. Okay. Takes place in I, heaven. Way darker than Devil's Carnival. Well, you know what? Like in my house, it's kind of like there's no rules on what's too dark for. I, it's not. It's not like grotesquely dark, but it's just the tone is darker because it's <laughs> heaven. It's supposed to be happy, but it's really like forties and just dark and rule heavy. It's kind of funny. It's kind of funny in, in a way, because when you, when you think about it, when you were a kid, you really wish your parents would be into the same stuff that you were into. So you had to find something that was like, you know, a little bit softer on your parents. Yeah. In my house, it's kind of like, we have to find something that's softer on the kids because the parents are so into horror. You <laughs> 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 want our fucking kids to be into the same shit. Into, yeah. But, yeah, but it's like too intense or whatever for them. Screw <laughs> you, mom and dad. I'm going to Disney World. I like Disney. <laughs> it's like you sit down and watch Dead Three right now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm watching Paw Patrol. <laughs> no, you're watching Cannibal Ferox. <laughs> oh, oh. oh. <laughs> That is a crossover that needs <laughs> to happen. Paw Patrol, Kimmel Ferox, yes. <laughs> I'm sure every parent will agree with you on that. <laughs> the but anyways, Jeff, uh, what do you think of uh, uh, Repo? Because you're, you're more of a musical guy than I am. Yeah, you know, it, it's... I, I've seen it. It... it uh, it's not one that had a ton of staying power for me. I, I get that there's an audience for it. Um, we were asked questions about horror musicals from somebody else, I think, in conjunction with this book. Um, but there are actually quite a, a number of them. Uh, Evil Dead, the musical being, yep. I think, a really successful one. Uh, and the songs in Evil Dead, the musical, are pretty good. They're, it's, it's, I, don't, I think the great thing about Evil Dead, the musical, is that it was never really meant to be a big show, right? It was meant to be like a mid-sized show with yeah. Splatter Zone. They and and it's kind of had songs to match. Like it's, it's never, it was never going to be the one that like would take sort of like Broadway by storm or even like a tier Toronto, like a giant Ed Murvish theater. It would, it would play at one of the smaller ones. Um, and, and that kind of works for, for that. And I think, I, I think that the horror musical, you know, has its, it kind of has its roots in, you know, even the Grand Vignol kind of, there, there's yeah. something theatrical about horror in general. Like, it, 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 there were, like, or Alice Cooper, you know, was always playing off on having like a stage show. But I remember going to see Alice Cooper open for Iron Maiden and Alice Cooper's stage show is much smaller. Like there's a guillotine. Like what it, what the horror musical is, is doing is never 
so big. Like there's something kind of, uh, it's almost like chamber, something great Intimate. and small about it, as opposed to Iron Maiden, which is massive props and it's very operatic. Despite it being called the, you know, Repo the Genetic Opera, it's, it's, it's not so big. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's a good point. I think that's a good point, though, about the whole, like, with Evil Dead. It's a, it's a horror musical, and it's really successful, but it's kind of like that really successful horror musical that takes place in the back room of a warehouse somewhere, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, sort of, like, where it has to thrive. Um, I saw the Toxic Avenger in Toronto at uh, what's now the Danforth Music Hall. I think it was yeah. called the Danforth Music Hall. Yeah, it was the musical, yeah. And, uh, and I thought... It was good. I thought the songs were good and everything like that. I was, I was, I was into it. Um, I was into that more than I am into more like, like Evil Dead. I actually saw, believe it or not, just outside of Salem, Massachusetts on Halloween night. It wasn't in Salem. It was in a little town just outside of Salem. And we just drove there for the night or whatever. It was just a little like tiny community theater uh, Matt, you'll probably know from from Hamilton. It was kind of like the equivalent of like the Staircase Theater, yeah. sort of thing, like just very very small. But that's what makes it cool. You know what I mean? Like it's like yeah. that, like very outsider. Um, oh. As Jeff said at the beginning of the interview, like outsider form of art that horror is. There's a I think just with with horror generally, whether it be film or theater or anything, is that there's a level of intimacy that's sort of necessary for it to be effective where you yep. can't do something on a large scale because the larger the scale, the less scary it becomes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It creates distance. It has to be like a really up close in your face kind of genre for it to be effective. I've found anyways. Yeah. So much of it's also just internal. It's about what somebody's thinking and feeling. Exactly. Um, you know, when I'm, when I'm writing a, uh, if I'm writing fiction and my, the, the anthology of, of horror stories that I've got coming out, so much of it is just, what a character is thinking as he or she is moving through a scenario that is, is all clearly not okay. And, and it's that I'm stopping, I'm thinking, I'm reacting to this. That's not right. You know, I opened the fridge door. That severed head shouldn't be there. Who severed it? it? Oh, it's my severed head, you know, but but there's there's a level of, of sort of internal thought that goes on in horror film that, that you as an audience member are also thinking because you're kind of vicariously living through it with, with, with the characters. Like a horror film kind of works, it has to almost work in real time. Like it doesn't chop up time the way like, like a biography might or another genre of film where there are great gulfs of time. Like most good horror movies tend to clock in like 90 minutes or less. And they're like, they're here, they're now, they're very immediate. Um, and 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 they they use t- they they might stretch time um, it, subjectively, but but they often take place in a very concise and very specific amount of time. Um, I, I think I think that holds true for horror fiction as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess I'll just say, I mean, I think it's been covered, but I mean, yeah, I love the book. And uh, I mean, I guess to connect it to, to those professors who, uh, for whatever reason, maybe they weren't fans of horror and that biased, you know, their uh, their notion about uh, their generalizations, let's say, about horror film. Um, I think it's it's the attention to detail and the decisions that are made that really make good horror good. 
uh, and very effective, that intimacy and that, that personal touch. And I think that that, that's what, uh, you know, I love about this book is, is you really get to find out about those, those, uh, those conscious choices that uh, enhance the experience of all these amazing movies. And so, and, yeah, thanks again for this, uh, this uh, passion project. Uh, I, yeah. I love it. Yeah, for sure. Thanks. All right. So just to summarize, where is the book available? Because we know, I believe it has already come out, if I'm not mistaken. It is out, it is released. It's, uh, it's, it's available now, and it's available in really all the usual places, uh, Amazon, major book chains, and everything like that. If you if you search online, you'll find it very easily, Blood on Black Wax. And uh, one thing that we didn't talk about, we won't get into it now, but there is a um, another project that was attached to this book, and that was releasing uh, the soundtrack to the Canadian slasher film starring Jamie Lee Curtis, Prom Night. And that is available now as well. So you get all the disco hits from the music, from the film, as well as uh, the score. Nice. Oh, That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Well then, gentlemen, thank you both for coming on. This is a, fanta- it's a fantastic book. It was fantastic to get to talk to you guys. Uh, and other than that, on behalf of Steve Spears and Eric, I'm going to say good night and we'll talk to you all soon. All right. Awesome. Bye. Yeah. And thanks, thanks to the four of you guys as well. You guys, all four of you were really, uh, really great to talk to and, uh, offered, mm-hmm. offered a lot of insights into this as well. So it was really great talking to the four of you. Thank you. It's our pleasure. Yeah. Be right back. (laughs) 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 See you guys. Bye. Bye. Well, that's it for us this week on Geeks with Kids. If you want to get a hold of us, you can send us an email at podcast at geekswithkids.ca. And don't forget to like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekswithkids. Follow us on Twitter at geekswithkidscn. Check out our pics on Instagram at geekswithkids. And you can find all of this good stuff on our website at www.geekswithkids.ca. So if you like what you hear, why don't you hit that subscribe button and leave us a comment. This podcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube, and your favorite podcasting app. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.